This discussion is about academic research and its impact on practice. And we'll be asking how academic research feeds into and influences what practitioners believe and also what they do. How does it influence care and treatment of people at the end of their lives? And how does it affect disposal and what's on offer and the way that family and friends are dealt with? And how does practice shape academic theory? What are the areas of death, dying and disposal to which researchers and academics do not get access? We'll be asking, too, what are the next frontiers for academic research? I'm Winifred Robinson. I'm chairing the discussion. So let's begin the first part of the discussion, and I'll start with an introduction of the panel. And we're aiming for here an explanation of how academic research has changed things. How has academic research grown the knowledge base, replacing myths and things half-known? Our panellists today are, and I'll go from my right to left, Professor Alan Kelleher. He's a medical and public health sociologist. He's currently Professor of Community Health at Middlesex University in London. Through the adoption of his work, there's been a shift from the sole emphasis on clinical bedside direct services style care to one that takes a public health approach involving adopting health promotion and community provisions of care as part of a direct services model. Now, this approach has brought a balance to the more intensive services approach by encouraging community partnerships. Next is Professor Douglas Davis. He's an anthropologist and a theologian at the University of Durham. Douglas has studied death, dying and the afterlife, and he wrote the Encyclopedia of Cremation. He's also studied natural burial. Nigel Hartley is Director of Supportive Care at St Christopher's Hospice in London. He's worked in end-of-life care for over 20 years, and he's currently developing day and outpatient services at St Christopher's Hospice. Angela Abbott runs bereavement services for Milton Keynes Council. She manages 10 cemeteries, one crematorium with two chapels, three cremators and eight staff. And Arna Arneson is a social anthropologist and senior lecturer at the University of Aberdeen. He's been involved in research on death and grief for a number of years in England, Japan, Scotland and Iceland. And his interests are mainly the narrative construction of the experiences of loss and the politics, politics of death, grief and memorials. In section three, we're going to talk about academic research into end-of-life dying and disposal. So let's begin by asking the panel, who decides which research will be done? Who would like to answer that? Good question. <laughs> Arna, who's decided? Who decides which research will be done? Uh, goodness me. Well, as, I suppose a lot of, lot of people, a lot of uh, institutions do. Of course, I mean, uh, partly it's the research councils, uh, to some extent, uh, directed by government, who will decide uh, where money will be spent on research. And in a climate as we are in now, where uh, research money is, is desperately scarce, in, certainly in the social sciences and the humanities, uh, these research councils will be increasingly important in, in determining this. Uh, in some cases, it's the... Uh, individual institutions where people live. Uh, some of them have quite a uh, specific uh, agenda that they want to follow. Um, in some cases, of course, it will be individual academics and researchers. In, 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 to some extent, it will be uh, uh, practitioners uh, coming forward with, uh, with things that they propose to be investigated, in some cases possibly supported by, by some funding. But, you know, with, with, with research, it's, the major research happens where the, where, the, where, the, where the money is, I think. 
I, mean, I think there are different, different pathways, aren't there? I suppose one thing that drives me bonkers consistently is, is, is the, the sort of nurse or the social worker or the member of staff in the hospice who comes and tells me they're going to do their masters and they have to do some research. So a lot of it, I think, is qualification-driven, um, and a lot of that becomes meaningless because of that. <laughs> and I, I say that in the, the best possible intention. So people struggle to find something that, that they want to sort of look at that, that's relevant. Um, there's some major funding bodies that, that Anna talks about. But I suppose one thing that interests me about research is data, because I think data can be quite powerful. And, you know, once the, the gobbit of data gets dropped into the public arena, so one in three people will die of dementia in, you know, after 2025, suddenly people take note of it. And it actually then becomes sort of, you know, becomes something that people repeat and use. I think the danger in that is when we don't keep it up to date because data changes. So, for instance, you know, sort of eight years ago, we were all going around saying 54% of complaints in the NHS were all about the way death was managed. That is no longer the case because a lot of work has been done and that, that, that figure has changed. So, but I'm really interested in data, in, in data and how that's translated and transferred um, and dropped into, the sort of public, into people's public perceptions, if that makes sense. Mm. Alan, are we doing the right research? And are, are we doing the right research? Well, <laughs> I don't know that that's the question I'd ask. <laughs> now, universities put great pressure on us to think of research as funded research. As funded research. Yes. Getting a grant. Yes. And then there are other pressures because of the need to get money to think that research is about empirical work. You should go out and talk to somebody, get that gob of data. Um, and this means that scholarship has gone almost by the board. Very few people are actually doing scholarship. They're doing research. Scholarship used to be, well, it still is, I hope, the kind of library work, the exploration of the conversations that are the loudest, if you like, within each discipline. And um, I'm of an age, like Douglas, really, where I where I've followed those conversations, where those conversations have been really important to me. Um, and with one exception, which is my public health work, which I've already talked about. But um, so are we doing the right research? I think if you look at the current trend, which has been this grant-driven tendency, this empirical drive, it's been going on since World War II, really, and it's, and it's gotten quite bad in the last 10 years. That's a very, very sad direction, in my view. Um, and it means that people are being forced to reinvent the wheel. They're not reading beyond five and 10 years of work. All of this is very bad. Um, it's leading to what Einstein used to say, feeling for the thinnest part of the board and drilling as many holes as you can there. <laughs> it leads to what C. Wright Mills called the cheerful idiot. And I think um, those are very bad values, and they are now the values being championed at universities. 
Can you say something about dialogues and partnerships, the way that people um, try to then uh, get this money out when they want to do research, and how you decide on um, the ethics of a particular piece of research, and also whether it has any practical application when people are going through. It may be a process you disapprove of, but when people go through it. Well... I mean, I'm sure Anna and Nigel and others will, will talk about their fields. But in my area, the study of dying, which is, our, which is what I look at, um, like Nigel, I constantly come across people doing masters and PhDs and they want to study dying. So the first thing they want to do is go and find some dying people and interview them. I really hate that. <laughs> I, I really do. Um, it's not like dying people haven't got enough to do without having to be waylaid by you. Um, in addition to everything else. Um, and again, we know enough, there are enough first-person accounts of dying, not just of cancer or ALS or AIDS, but also on death row and among suicide survivors and a whole range of other forms of dying, death camps and so forth. But we don't really have to do a lot of basic research on that. The challenge is interpretation. The challenge is shifting our gaze so that we see something different about an old phenomenon. Um, so the first ethical problem is really the first ethical problem I ask my students to come to me is why do you want to interview dying people? On what, what justifies you to do that when what we really need is a greater understanding rather than more data? That's the big challenge in my area empirically. That's drilling through the thick bit of the wood. It is, and that's really the only worthwhile bit. I mean, you can come up with data and you can go to the BBC and they give it a good blast and you'll get popular for five years or less and you'll be forgotten. But the deep understandings that will stay with us, the conversations and debates we'll have over the years, really come with what kind of interpretation are you offering us about this thing now? Yes, I would add to this because the technology of, of research is, is, of course, somebody has a good idea they want to explore or a research group or developing work they've done before. And then the various research councils will send out these applications to people and some of the people are in this room. And you read these applications and you say, are they good ideas? Is their research method good? Will it deliver? What will it deliver? All these kind of questions. And then you have to give your judgment as to whether you think this should be funded or not. These are very difficult ethical questions for you when these applications land on your desk and you know your applications landing on other people's desks for the same thing. So I think there's luck involved in that. Do they like you or not? Because they've got a pretty good idea who's sending these things in. Yeah. Uh, quite often they do. There's prejudice involved. There is human, the human factors involved in research are great. The luck factor is big. That if you can press the right button at the right time, then I think you can be lucky. But Alan's point is really important, depth. Uh, for the last 15, 20 years, I've taught a course called Death, Ritual and Belief at Nottingham and Durham. We got about, I see two of my former students here today, who have about 40 to 50 people doing this each year. Now, this is really interesting to me because when they write their essays or go on to do dissertations, you know, what they're interested in is fascinating. And breeding this kind of information, culture, history fostered curiosity 
is really important because I think that that extends our humanity. And from my perspective, uh, universities, which are important, really important factors of cultural life, the universities as part of British civilization and the civilization of many countries represented here are radically important. And a part of that, do you know, people reading the classics, reading the great philosophers, reading the great religions and thinking about them is a way of making sure we don't slip into barbarism. Yeah. And death is part of, deeply part of life and bad death is part of barbarism. And by bad death, I don't mean groaning and grunting a bit at the end, but being put to death by death spots. So I think that creative thinking around living and dying, uh, which our universities, you know, not least this open university that we're in, do, is really important for, for civilization itself. And in the sense that Alan made this very important distinction between, which is a difficult one, between research and scholarship. But, you know, scholarship is what happens to a researcher when they get older. <laughs> and don't reinvent the wheel. Because there are so many people who think they've read certain books and they've never read them at all. They just know the titles of them. We're all guilty of it to some shape or form. But doing that work without producing the quick soundbite is really important, I think. I just add something... Quickly, going back to this um, thing about research affecting practice, I, I just wanted to share something. I was reading a report yesterday just by accident, and, and, and it was a, quite an in-depth academic research study on the understanding of the place of death um, for people. Um, and it was done through the, the NHS, the National Institute for Health Research. But part, it was a multifaceted study. There was lots of different layers to it. But one, of, one part of it was interviewing senior managers in the NHS and senior clinicians as well as um, clinical commissioning directors and leads. And one of the questions that was asked as part of the research was, can you tell me about a piece of research that has influenced the way that you have developed your practice or services? And I haven't quite sort of got this in my head, but the answer to that is that this question took all interviewees by surprise, and no one could think of a piece of research that influenced their practice or the development of their services. I think that's extraordinary. And I, I just sort of share that, really, because it, it sort of leaves me feeling uncomfortable. <laughs> um. mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting. I mean, <laughs> but it could be interesting at various levels. I mean, had they read very much stuff? Well, probably not. So it might be an ignorance factor that leads to that. Yes, but that's still incredibly relevant. In incredibly relevant, but that then throws the, the, the burden onto um, institutions for their ongoing professional development, for the inter inter interface of research and practice, but I suppose also onto you people of how you develop a language which can both be understood um, by practitioners, but also is in such a simple language um, that it distorts the truth of what you're trying to say, which I think is what Alan has felt about some of my questions, that they're so simple <laughs> that um, they make him want to kill me. No, no. Um, <laughs> I didn't think they were the simple questions. I mean, oh, they're so, they're so wrong big. Question, they're right, so but big but and not, wrong. Not simple. Um, <laughs> Oh, now, how do you do that? How do you disseminate your work? Uh, again, good question. And uh, 
I, I'm absolutely not the right person to ask. I mean, it's, it's been said of anthropology in the UK in general that it speaks in such a language that it has effectively excluded itself from the public forum. Uh, observation made by, uh, made by uh, external ex experts on it. Uh, I, I go back to some extent to what we were talking about just before. The, the reality of university life now is such that uh, the, the pressures for research and kind of a highbrow research, as it were, means that academics, certainly in my field, are increasingly forced to speak in a language that only they themselves understand. And if they want to get ahead, if they want to get the money to do the research and so on and so forth, you know, this is what they are being driven to do. And that, of course, with this government policy at the end of the day, is then kind of uh, forcing a wedge between the academics and, and the people who might po possibly benefit from this, from this research. Now, that, that is not to say that anthropologists themselves are not to some extent to blame for speaking in a kind of a language that uh, nobody else un un understands. Uh, I have no kind of particular practical um, solutions to offer as to how you would, would, would go about doing so, only, only, only to say that surely if, if, uh, um, uh, if the idea is worthwhile um, entertaining, then, then, then certainly it ought to be possible to express it in such a way that, uh, that people in general understand it, really. I mean. I think there's a couple of things to say about that. <clears throat> First one, it, it, it's complex, this business about authorship and, and readership, audience. Mm. I mean, I write a whole variety of books. Some of my books are textbooks, so I write them for students. What I would write for students, I wouldn't write to my colleagues, but I write books for my colleagues. And you should be able to write books for your colleagues. You know, some people say when they go to look at a piece of art, that doesn't mean anything to them because it's not realistic. Well, it's often because some of those artists are speaking to other artists, and that's a legitimate form of art. Um, so there's that. Um, when I wrote my public health books, I wrote them completely differently from my sociology books, completely differently. I wrote them basically uh, for a clinical audience. And I remember a couple of social workers saying to me when they first read Health Promoting Palliative Care and was over a few drinks and they felt relaxed and they could speak frankly to me. They said, you know, Alan, you know, health-promoting palliative care, you know, that's a pretty simple book. <laughs> you know, pretty simple. You know, it's fairly obvious, the insights that you're saying. But actually the biggest feedback I got from doctors and nurses was the book was a little bit theoretical, a bit <laughs> abstract, a bit hard to read. You can't win. <laughs> you can't win. You know, you try to write for your audiences and you'll alienate another audience. But I think what we recognise as researchers increasingly is that we are writing for multiple audiences and that we do different works for different audiences. And I think that's the only thing we can do. And I think that there is a case for colleagues to talk to colleagues. But there is increasingly a case that our work should be read by the broader public so they should be intelligible. Um, C. Wright Mills uh, wrote that in 1959 in, in the sociology field. There's no real reason why we can't speak English, folks. Um, so that's true. Um, so, but that said, there is a case also for us to be 
to speak in our secret language to our secret societies as well. Yes, I think um, one of the things that I found just in my practicalities of just being a crematorium manager and not been to university or anything else, just been to a comprehensive, um, is that research on what we provide um, is very interesting to us and it becomes more and more um, part of our everyday life. But to actually access it is quite difficult for for, for myself, perhaps that hasn't got the same um, knowledge of academical life, but ha- I have to provide a practical side of that and to use academic documents to, to try and interpret that for me is quite difficult, but it is part of our work and I don't see many government bodies using that when they come up with suggestions on how I should run my service or how doctors complete their forms or other things. And there is research done on that. The reuse of graves was one, and it's just been pushed to one side because they haven't valued the research that was done and the requirements that will hit somebody later on. So just from a simplistic view, um, I think it is vital that it carries on and we get some more of it if we can, please. Nigel, how do you decide that the work you're doing um, is good or not good? How do you know? Through experience (laughs) and instinct and through what people who are actually getting the care tell us. Um, For me, it's as simple as that. I I do think, you know, I, I mean, I am a practitioner. I would never call myself a researcher, although I have been involved in some research. I think there is a gap between the two, if we're being completely honest, in terms of, in, in terms of just doing the day-to-day job, of, how, of what influences you to do the job the way you do it. And I think sometimes research takes years and years to sort of flow through into practice. I, I mean, I was thinking about, you know, there was a huge amount of research done around hospice daycare, for example, um, around 2000, um, with, with Irene Higginson and her colleagues sort of damning it quite, quite um, rigorously. And it's, it's only now, 12, 13, 14 years later, that people are actually starting to do something about it and looking back at that research and, and taking note of it. So I think for, for me, as someone who's been embedded in practice and is, is it, I would call myself an instinctive individual, I listen to people, I talk to patients, hundreds and thousands of, of dying people over the years, sometimes you just know what's right. Now, I understand the need to make that, to articulate that in, in, in ways to, in, in, in order to prove it. But I, I do think there is a, a, a challenge there in, um, for people who are doing the day-to-day job. I don't know whether that answers the question, but I, I think it's a really difficult one. Before we open the discussion to the floor, just one more question for the panel, which is um, about the future of academic research. What are the things we still can't speak about? How could academics help? Alan. Well, I'll just repeat what I said earlier because I believe in that, which is that um, although it's getting increasingly harder, it's it's making it even more increasingly important that we continue to, to do scholarship, that we do continue to keep conversing with our colleagues, um, that we let the literature suggest some of the problems that need investigating. Sometimes this means that um, doing work, and even major work, that's unfunded. And that's a terribly hard thing to do. Don't think for a minute I don't know that. I mean, when I began my academic career in the 80s, it it felt as bad as it does now when you're beginning a career 
because the pressure's on you to publish and to get tenure or even get a job. Um, all of that was with me at the time. When I began my career in the mid-'80s, it was the worst time to be employed uh, in 30 years in academia, but I managed to get a job. Uh, but I do think it's absolutely important not to lose some of your ideals around the issue of scholarship. It's absolutely essential. Otherwise, you're just doing state-driven work, and it's being done by dangling grants at you. If that's the kind of career you want, then you go that way. And, and many senior colleagues of mine have done that, but I think that's a mistake. And I think the future is really about being able to do both so as that um, you don't get kicked out of the house, but that you are able to do work that's important to you so as that when you're in the damn house, you know why for, for yourself. Douglas. Yeah, I think it's, I agree with all of that. And I think that you never know when ideas come. The human brain is the most remarkable thing that we're aware of, and it is truly remarkable. And I'm known in some worlds for death stuff, but very few of you would know that the other half of my life is spent studying Mormonism. And I'm really well known in many parts of the world for studying Mormonism. I was sitting one day in a very well-known American university library. I was over there for some history seminar or whatever. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me that all the death stuff I'd been working on for years was of radical significance for understanding the origin of Mormonism. It led to a new book. One of those moments of pure creation, grief in the boy Joseph Smith created Mormonism. A whole new world religion. This is the Davis hypothesis. People disagree with it. But it is really interesting for one of those moments when you have an idea and something flows from one part of your scholarly mind to another part of your scholarly mind and something happens. Now, for different people, this will be different things. But this, I'm a great believer in not putting all your eggs in one basket. And if you can do some research that's not funded but curiosity-driven, as we say, then this is life-fulfilling for you and for me, and could lead to all sorts of new ideas. I mean, I can think of half a dozen things I'd like to do research on, not going to list them just now, but curiosity-driven stuff related to the, the real hard, gritty stuff you're perhaps gaining data on can produce all sorts of ideas. And government indeed can drive these things out of your mind. And when they put forward their suggested areas for research, you look at them and you think... Well, that's pretty dull. And often they are pretty dull, to be honest, because the bureaucrats producing them, the academic bureaucrats producing them, can get to a bit of life when they're dull as well. We all can. <laughs> so keep blue sky research, curiosity, eyes open to the world to see what zaps you. Oh, no. Uh... And, uh, I suppose a, 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 a number of things, possibly, but... Uh, um... Uh, just to kind of, you know, while agreeing entirely with, with all of what uh, Alan and, and Douglas have just said, uh, maybe to think a little bit about uh, what, what kind of research uh, might, what possibly might be good if it were to happen. I, I, I still think that uh, there is a huge tendency both in the kind of practice area but also to some extent in the academic area to really kind of naturalize that 
to, 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 to speak of death as if it were a, a, a kind of a singular phenomenon. And uh, we, we, we talk in terms of kind of attitudes to death as if death is a thing, and then on top of that we have different attitudes. And I think there is still an awful lot of work to be done in terms of thinking through the implication of maybe not assuming death as a, as a, as a natural thing. I think also uh, the, uh, the history of the way in which uh, grief as, a kind of a, as an emotional experience has become not the only, of course, but the most significant aspect of bereavement as we see it, and the implication of that is something that still needs to be uh, looked at more closely. Uh, I think uh, there's, there's one thing that is a particular sort of a, a pet project. If, if I were doing anything about it, I maybe would be able to call it a project, but um, I can't find a better word for it just now, um, which has to do with the link between um, death, death understood as a sacrifice, which I know some of the people here have been, have been looking at. Uh, but also the, then the relations between that and, 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 and politics. And I think the, the kind of death studies community and, and practice people have a particular, uh, I, I'm going to call it duty, uh, with the uh, anniversary and the celebrations and the memorials around the First World War that are coming up next year and the way in which these will no doubt be mobilized in terms of uh, um, who it is that should be remembered and who is it that should be forgotten and that this is a particularly important thing to think about and, and, and speak to the academic and the practice community here, not least given the fact that this is a country that is effectively continually now at, at, at war and at war with people that it uh, designates as, as, as other abroad and at home. So I, th I think that's maybe something to, uh, to look at as well. Angela, as a practitioner, what are the areas, the subjects, the parts of dealing with death and dying that we still don't want to um, talk about or confront? Um, I suppose an obvious one is fear, but you, you tell me what you think. Yeah, I, I, my, my sort of goal in my small life, in a sense, is um, to see if we can get death and dying on the national curriculum for children and for schools. I can't... I can't quite work out why we can't engage children more with death and dying. I just don't see the, the, the reason behind why we have to protect them in such a, a precious way when eventually, as, as we know, 100% um, of us will die. Um, doctors can't cure that, and they never will. And so children, young children, teenagers, will have to confront it. And I desperately am sad that we can't, as a society, seem to think that we're comfortable with that. I find that very annoying. Um, and have many times tried to go out to local schools to talk to them about my role, um, not for a gory reason, but just to educate them, and sort of have been turned down or have to have written permission from their parents before I even do that. And yet I can go to a nursing home um, where perhaps grandchildren <laughs> visit and quite easily talk to the older population about death and dying. And I find that the most sort of difficult thing to deal with as to why we're a, a nation that's so frightened to allow children to confront death. Nigel, what do you think is the next frontier for research or for talking or bringing out into the open? I've got no idea. Mm -hmm. um, I think I heard Barbara Monroe say recently that care that heals is care that creates partnerships. And I think whatever happens in the future, we can only do it together. 
and I think that's a responsibility we have of bringing those the people who do the work, those people who research it, those people who fund it together to make sure what we're doing is absolutely relevant and right. I think I imagine, I imagine whatever happens in the future regarding research, it's going to be cost-driven. I mean, we're living in, in a crisis. Health and social care in the UK is, is in the worst crisis it, it, it's been in probably in living memory. And whatever happens is going to be driven by cost. So maybe some of the research we need to look at is how much care costs um, and, and look at how we can make it cost-effective rather than over-paternalistic and sort of smothering a small group of people with a, a lot of care while other people don't get it. And I wonder whether maybe the, the key thing about any useful research that's done is that it doesn't give us new insights but supports what we already know and also gets us closer to the reality of what those people we care for experience. And I think that's really important. The Open University. For more information, go to www.open.edu forward slash iTunes U.